0: Do you love listening to true crime stories? Do you react out loud to details of the case? Do you have a dark and twisted sense of humor? Do you love cats? Wait, what? Then you should listen to our podcast, ODFM, One from Murder. Each week, you'll hear our retelling of real life murder cases, some famous, some little known. We'll give you our in the moment reactions, inappropriate humor, and the occasional feline commentary. You can listen to ODFM Podcasts on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, YouTube, and more. And check us out on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, or on our website, odfmpodcast.com. But remember, this podcast is not for the faint of heart. Or those without a twisted sense of humor. Hello. Thanks for joining me today. This is Murder Bucket, and I'm your host. Hannah. On today's episode, I'm going to be telling you about D.B. Cooper, the 727 hijacker who disappeared. Thanksgiving Eve of 1971, a middle-aged man carrying a black case approached the flight counter for Northwest Orient Airlines at Portland International Airport He stated that his name was Dan Cooper. He used cash to purchase a one-way ticket on Flight 305 to Seattle, a short 30-minute flight. Cooper boarded Flight 305 and sat in seat 18C. Now, one account says it was 18E, while another one says 15D. He is described as a quiet man who appeared to be in his 40s, wearing a business suit with a black tie and white shirt. He ordered bourbon and a soda while the flight was taking off. There were only 35 other passengers on board. Flight 305 departed Portland International Airport on time around 2.50 p.m. It is said that shortly after takeoff, Cooper handed the flight attendant, Florence Schaffner, a note. She assumed the note contained Cooper's number and dropped it in her purse without looking at it. Cooper leaned forward and whispered, Miss You better look at that note. I have a bomb. The exact wording of the note is unknown because Cooper reclaimed it. After Florence read the note, Cooper told her to sit down beside him. She did as he requested and then quietly asked to see the bomb. He opened it long enough for her to see eight red cylinders attached to wires coated with red insulin and a large cylinder batter. He then stated his demands. $200,000 in negotiable American currency, four parachutes, and a fuel truck standing by in Seattle to refuel the aircraft upon arrival. Florence then left to speak with the pilots and convey his instructions. When she returned, he was wearing dark sunglasses. The pilot, William Scott, contacted Seattle-Tacoma Airport Air Traffic Control, which in turn informed local and federal authorities. The 35 other passengers were given false information that their arrival in Seattle would be delayed because of minor mechanical difficulties. Northwest Orient Airlines President Donald Nyrup authorized payment of the ransom and ordered all employees to cooperate fully with Cooper's request. The aircraft circled Puget Sound for about two hours to allow Seattle police and FBI to assemble his parachutes, ransom money, And mobilize emergency personnel. One of the other flight attendants, Tina Mucklow, stated that Cooper appeared very familiar with the local terrain, and at one point he remarked, huh, that looks like Tacoma down there. He also correctly mentioned that McCord Air Force Base was only a 20-minute drive from the Seattle Tacoma Airport. Florence described him as calm, polite, and well-spoken. Tina told investigators that he didn't seem nervous and he was nice, never cruel or nasty. He was thoughtful and calm the whole time. He ordered a second bourbon and soda, paid his tab, and even offered to request meals for the flight crew during the stop in Seattle. FBI agents assembled the ransom from several Seattle banks. 10,000 unmarked $20 bills, most with the serial numbers beginning with the letter L, indicating issuance by the Federal Reserve Bank of San Francisco. Cooper rejected the military-issue parachutes offered by McCord Air Force personnel. He instead demanded civilian parachutes with manually operated cords. Seattle police attained those from a local skydiving school. Cooper was informed that his demands had been met at 5.24 p.m. and the aircraft landed at the Seattle-Tacoma Airport at 5.39 Cooper instructed the pilot to taxi the jet to an isolated, brightly lit section of the apron. Close every window shade in the cabin to deter police snipers. Al Lee, Northwest Orient Seattle operation manager, approached the aircraft wearing street clothes because he was afraid Cooper might mistake him for a police officer because of his uniform. He delivered the cash-filled sack and parachutes to Tina via the aft stairs which are a set of steps built into the aircraft. Once the delivery was complete, Cooper ordered all passengers, Florence and the senior flight attendant, Alice Hancock, to leave the plane. Cooper outlines his flight plan to the cockpit crew during refueling. It would consist of a southeast course toward Mexico City and the minimum airspeed possible without stalling. He then specified that the landing gear would remain deployed. The wing flaps would be lowered 15 degrees and the cabin would remain unpressurized. Co pilot William Razak informed Cooper that the aircraft's range was limited to 1,000 miles under the specified flight configuration, which meant that a second refueling would be necessary before entering Mexico. Cooper and the crew discussed options and agreed on Reno, Nevada as the fueling stop. Cooper directed the pilot to take off, but Northwest's home office objected on the grounds that it was unsafe to take off with the aft staircase deployed. Cooper stated that it was indeed unsafe, but would not argue the point. He would lower it once they were airborne. An FAA official did request a face-to-face meeting with Cooper aboard the aircraft, which was denied. The refueling process was delayed because of a vapor lock in the fuel tanker truck's pumping mechanism. Once refueling had been completed, the plane was able to take off. At 7.40 p.m., the Boeing 727 took off with five people on board. Cooper, Pilot Scott, Flight Attendant Tina, Co-Pilot William, and Flight Engineer Harold Anderson. Two F-106 fighter aircrafts followed behind the airline, one above and one below, so that they were out of Cooper's view. A Lockheed T-33 trainer also shadowed the 727 before running low on fuel and turning back near Oregon-California state line. None of the pilots saw him jump or could pinpoint a location where he could have landed. Cooper told Tina to join the rest of the crew in the cockpit and remain there with the doors closed. As she complied, she observed Cooper tying something around his waist but could not make out exactly what it was. At 8 p.m., a warning light flashed in the cockpit indicating that the aft staircase had been activated. The crews offered assistance via intercom, but were refused. The crew then noticed a subjective change of air pressure, indicating that the aft door was open. At 8.13 p.m., the aircraft's tail section sustained a sudden upward movement, significant enough to require trimming to bring the plane back to level flight. At 10.15 p.m., the aft staircase was still deployed when Scott and William landed at Reno Airport. FBI agents, state troopers, Sheriff's deputies and Reno police surrounded the plane because it was not yet known if Cooper was still on board, but after a search, it was determined he was not. The FBI recovered 66 unidentified fingerprints aboard the plane. They also found Cooper's black clip-on tie, his tie clip, two out of the four parachutes, one of which had been open and the suspension lines had been cut from its canopy. Local police and FBI agents immediately began questioning suspects and, among them, considered more than 800. Of these, all but two dozen were eliminated. An Oregon man named D.B. Cooper, who had a minor police record, was one of the first person of interest in the case. He was contacted by the Portland police on the off chance that the hijacker used his real name. He was quickly ruled out as a suspect but a local reporter consumed the eliminated suspect's name with the pseudonym used by the hijacker. A wire service reporter republished the error. The moniker D.B. Cooper became lodged in the public's memory. Because of a small difference in estimating the aircraft's speed and the environmental conditions, a precise search area was difficult to define. Neither of the Air Force fighter pilots saw anyone exit the airline either visually or on radar, nor did they see a parachute open. It is said that the T-33 pilots never made visual contact with the 727 at all. The FBI did an experimental recreation where Scott was piloting the same aircraft and flight configuration. Agents pushed a 200-pound sled out of the open aft stairs. It was concluded that at 8.13 p.m. was the probable jump time. With that figured out, it is said that his landing zone was within an area on the southernmost outreach of Mount St. Helens, a few miles southeast of Ariel, Washington. Searches of large areas of the mountainous wilderness were done on foot and by helicopter. Door-to-door searches of local farmhouses were also done. No trace of Cooper nor any of the equipment presumed to have left the aircraft with him were found. In early 1972, after the spring thaw, Teams of FBI agents aided by 200 Army soldiers, Air Force personnel, National Guardsmen, and civilian workers from Fort Lewis conducted another thorough ground search for 18 days in March and 18 days in April. Two local women stumbled upon a skeleton in an abandoned structure, later to be identified as the remains of a teenage girl who had been abducted and murdered several weeks prior. Ultimately, the search and recovery operation uncovered no significant material evidence related to the hijacking. About a month after the hijacking, the FBI distributed lists of the ransom money serial numbers to banks, casinos, racetracks, and other businesses that routinely conducted significant cash transactions. Northwest Orient offered a reward of 15% of the recovered money to a maximum of $25,000. The U.S. Attorney General John Mitchell released the serial numbers to the general public. Two men used counterfeit $20 bills printed with Cooper's serial numbers to swindle $30,000 from a Newsweek reporter in exchange for an interview with a man they falsely claimed was the hijacker. In 1973, The ransom money was still missing, so the Oregon Journal republished the serial numbers and offered $1,000 to the first person to turn in a ransom bill to the newspaper or the FBI office. The Seattle Post made a similar offer with $5,000 as the reward. The offers remained in effect until Thanksgiving of 1974. In 1975, Northwest Orient Insurance complied with an order from the Minnesota Supreme Court and paid the airlines a $180,000 claim on the ransom money. On July 8th of 2016, the FBI announced that it was suspending active investigation of the Cooper case, citing a need to focus its investigative resources and manpower on issues of higher priority, The 60-volume case file compiled over the 45-year course of the investigation will be preserved for historical purposes at the FBI headquarters in D.C. All the evidence gathered is open to the public to read and is available on the FBI website. Below are the only physical evidence that the FBI has. His description, he was 5'10", 180 pounds, mid-40s, with close-set piercing brown eyes and swarthy skin, his black clip-on tie, a mother-of-pearl tie clip, and eight filter-tipped Raleigh cigarette butts. Only four pieces of evidence linked to D.B. Cooper have turned up from 1978 to 2017. They are a placard printed with instructions for lowering the aft stairs of a 727 were found by a deer hunter near a logging road about 13 miles east of Castle Rock, Washington. Three packets of the ransom cash were found by an 8-year-old boy that was vacationing with his family on the Columbia River near Vancouver, Washington. A group of volunteers uncovered what they believe to be decades-old parachute straps. And finally, a piece of foam suspected to be part of his backpack in the Pacific Northwest. Cooper appeared to be familiar with the Seattle area and may have been an Air Force veteran based on the fact that he recognized the city of Tacoma from the air as a jet-circled Puget Sound and his accurate comment about McCord Air Force Base. According to the FBI, criminals who steal large amounts of money nearly always do so because they need it urgently. Cooper may have been a thrill seeker who made the jump just to prove that it could be done. The FBI theorized that Cooper took his alias from a popular Belgian comic book series from the 1970s featuring the fictional hero Dan Cooper. He was a Royal Canadian Air Force test pilot who took part in numerous heroic adventures, including parachuting. Because the Dan Cooper comics were never translated into English, they speculate that he may have encountered them during a tour of duty in Europe. Evidence suggests that Cooper was knowledgeable about flying technique, aircrafts, and the terrain. Ensuring he would not be deliberately supplied with sabotaged equipment, he demanded four parachutes to force the assumption that he might compel one or more of the crew to jump with him. He also chose a 727 because it was ideal for a bailout escape. The FBI was more skeptical, concluding that Cooper lacked crucial skydiving skills and experience. They commented No experienced parachutist would have jumped in the pitch black night, in the rain, and with a 172 mile hour wind in his face, wearing loafers and a trench coat. He also missed that his reserve parachute was only for training and had been sewn shut, something a skilled skydiver would have checked. In addition to planning his escape, Cooper retrieved the note and wore dark glasses, which indicated that he had a certain level of sophistication. It's not clear how he could have reasonably expected to ever spend the money. The FBI speculated from the beginning that Cooper did not survive his jump. Even if he did land safely, agents contended that survival in the mountainous terrain at the beginning of winter would have been impossible without an accomplice. But there is no evidence that Cooper requested or received any such help from the crew. There have been many suspects that the FBI processed over the years between 1971 and 2016. Nothing more than circumstantial evidence could ever be found to implicate any of them. In 2003, a Minnesota resident named Lyle Christensen watched a documentary about the hijacking and became convinced that his late brother Kenneth was in fact the hijacker. He failed to convince the FBI, though. Kenneth was a paratrooper in the Army in 1944. After leaving the Army, he joined Northwest Orient in 1954 as a mechanic based in Seattle. He was 45 at the time of the hijacking, but he only stood five eight and was 150 pounds. While dying of cancer in 1994, he did tell his brother, there is something you should know. But I can't tell you. Lyle never pressed him about it. After his death, family members discovered gold coins and a valuable stamp collection, along with two hundred thousand dollars in his bank account. Jack Coughlett was a con man, an ex convict, who claimed to have been the chauffeur and confidant of Abraham Lincoln's great grandson, Robert Todd Lincoln Beckwith. In nineteen seventy two, he began to claim that he was Cooper and attempted to sell his story to a Hollywood production company. He said he landed near Mount Hood, injuring himself and losing the ransom money in the process. Photos of him do bear a resemblance to the composite drawing, although he was in his mid-50s in 1971. L.D. Cooper was a leather worker and a Korean War veteran, and was proposed as a suspect by his niece Marla Cooper in 2011. She recalled that he and another uncle, planned something very mischievous involving the use of expensive walkie-talkies at their grandmother's house in Sisters, Oregon. On the day of the hijacking, the uncles were turkey hunting and LD Cooper came home wearing a bloody shirt. He claimed that it was the result of an auto accident. She said her uncle was obsessed with the Canadian comic book Dan Cooper and had them thumbtacked to his wall. Now, Barbara Dayton was a recreational pilot and a librarian at the University of Washington who served in the U.S. Merchant Marines and in the Army during World War II. After she was discharged, she worked with explosives in the construction industry and wanted to be a professional airline pilot but could not obtain her license. She claims to have staged the hijacking dressed as a man to get back at the airline industry and the FAA because of the insurmountable rules and conditions that had prevented her from getting her license. William Gossett was part of the Marine Corps, Army, and Air Force who saw action in Korea and Vietnam. His military experience included advanced jump training and wilderness survival. He was widely known to be obsessed with the hijacking. Later in his life, he told three of his sons that he had committed the hijacking. Photos of him also bear a resemblance to the composite drawing. He also showed his sons a key to a safe deposit box, which he claims contained the ransom money. Gossett was a compulsive gambler and was always strapped for cash. He then changed his name in 1988 and became a Roman Catholic priest, which some believe was an effort to disguise his identity. Robert Lepsey was a grocery store manager and married father from Grayling, Michigan, who disappeared in 1969. His vehicle was later found at his local airport, and a man matching his description was seen boarding a flight to Mexico. His physical description also resembled the composite sketch, but authorities concluded that Robert left voluntarily and closed the investigation about him. John List was a World War II and Korean War veteran who murdered his wife, three teenage children, and 85-year-old mother 15 days before the hijacking. He also withdrew $200,000 from his mother's bank account and disappeared. After he was captured in 1989, he admitted to the murders but denied being involved in the hijacking. Ted Mayfield was a Special Forces veteran, pilot, competitive skydiver, and instructor who served time in 1994 for negligent homicide after two of his students died when their parachutes failed to open. He was later found responsible for 13 additional skydiving deaths due to faulty equipment. He was eventually ruled out only because he called FBI agent Ralph Hemselback to volunteer advice on standard skydiving practices and possible landing zones. Richard McCoy Jr. was an Army veteran who served in Vietnam and was a warrant officer in the Utah National Guard. He was an avid recreational skydiver, and on April 7, 1972, He staged one of the best-known copycat hijackings. He was arrested on April 9th with the ransom cash in his possession. He was tried, convicted, and served a 45-year sentence. He did escape two years later from Lewisburg Federal Penitentiary and was eventually shot and killed by FBI agents. Robert Rackshaw was a retired pilot and ex-convent who served on an Army helicopter crew during the Vietnam War. He was arrested in Iran and deported back to the United States to face explosives possession and got the attention of the Cooper task force. After being released on bail, he attempted to fake his own death. Now, he also resembled a composite sketch, but he was eliminated as a suspect after no direct evidence of his involvement was found. Walter Recca was a military veteran and original member of the Michigan Parachute Team. His friend proposed him as a suspect. In 2008, Rekka confessed to being D.B. Cooper to a friend via a recorded phone call. He gave his friend permission to share his story after his death in 2014. He also allowed his friend to tape their conversations over a six-week period in late 2008. Forensic linguist Joe Koenig publicly stated at the principal media press conference on May 17, 2018, that he believed Walter was D.B. Cooper. William Smith was a World War II Navy veteran and would have been 43 at the time of the hijacking. He volunteered for combat crew training, citing his desire to fly. He then went on to work for Lehigh Valley Railroad until it filed for bankruptcy in 1970, subsequently resulting in him losing his pension. In his yearbook, a list of alumni killed in World War II lists an Ira Daniel Cooper, possibly the source of the hijacker's alias. Analysts state that Smith's naval aviation experience would have given him knowledge of planes and parachutes. Dwayne Weber was a World War II Army veteran who served time in six prisons for burglary and forgery between 1945 and 1968. Three days before he died in 1995, he told his wife that he was in fact Dan Cooper. At the time, the name meant nothing to her, and a friend told her the significance of the hijacking. She states that her husband had a nightmare during which he talked in his sleep about jumping from a plane and leaving his fingerprints on the aft stairs. Like the hijacker, he drank bourbon and was a chain smoker. Other evidence included a 1979 trip to Seattle and the Columbia River during which he took a walk alone along the riverbank. Four months later was when Brian Ingram, the young boy, found the ransom cash. The FBI eliminated him as an active suspect in July of 1988 when his fingerprints did not match the ones found on the aft stairs. Fifteen hijackings similar to Cooper's were attempted in 1972. All were unsuccessful. With the advent of universal luggage searches in 1973, the incidence of hijackings dropped dramatically. The Cooper hijacking marked the beginning of the end for unfettered and unscrutinized commercial airline travel. 31 hijackings were committed in U.S. airspace in 1972. 19 of them were for the purpose of extorting money. In 15 of those cases, the hijackers demanded parachutes, In early 1973, the FAA began requiring airlines to search all passengers and their bags. Only two more hijackings were attempted in 1973, both by psychiatric patients, one of whom intended to crash the airliner into the White House to kill President Nixon. In the wake of multiple copycat hijackings, the FAA required that all Boeing 727s be fitted with a device that prevents the lowering of the aft stairs during flight. It was later dubbed the Cooper Vane. Peepholes in the cockpit doors were also mandated. This made it possible for the cockpit crew to observe people in the cabin without having to open the door. In 1978, the hijacked 727 aircraft was sold by Northwest to Piedmont Airlines. It was re-registered N838N and continued in domestic carrier service. Then, it was purchased by the now-defunct charter company Key Airlines in 1984 and re-registered N-29-K-A and incorporated into the Air Force's civilian charter fleet that shuttled workers between Nelly Air Force Base and the Tonopah Test Range during the top-secret F-117 Nighthawk development program. In 1996, the aircraft was scrapped for parts in a Memphis boneyard. Cooper has appeared in the storylines of the television series Prison Break, The Blacklist, News Radio, News Radio, Leverage, Journeyman, Renegade, Numbers, 30 Rock, and Drunk History, as well as the 1981 film The Pursuit of D.B. Cooper and the 2004 film Without a Paddle. And that is the story of D.B. Cooper, the Boeing 727 hijacker who disappeared. And I got all of my information for today's episode from Wikipedia. Thank you for listening to Murder Bucket, and I hope you enjoyed today's episode.